We're back to the Neil Haley show, and I cannot believe that the season finale for the Blacklist is about to end the season, and the the show will be over, which is a very, very tough thing for so many fans. But they get this opportunity. I get a one-on-one with these two amazing people. What do you think about that? Well, as uh, as Harry, I was intrigued by the by the continuity that it represented. You know, as Harold Cooper. Uh, I think that he is a little overwhelmed with the fact that uh, that Elizabeth Keene, who she referred to Cooper as her father figure or the closest thing to a father that she had. Uh, I think that was in, in season eight. And then to have her act on that by bringing her daughter into our lives, my wife uh, and me, and bringing her into our home. It, it, it's intriguing because I know it's going to give access to Reddington to her in a more sort of domestic setting. Uh, that's going to bring some challenges or has brought challenges uh, that are unique into uh, what the earlier part of the series suggested. So I, I think it's rich dramatically. Um, I think, as I say, that it, it establishes the continuity between the great character of Elizabeth Keene, played by my dear friend Megan Boone and and, uh, and this wonderful actress, uh, Sammy um, who has played Agnes Keene. So it's been, it's been quite, you know, quite an extraordinary experience. It, it tells us how, that we've been around for a long time uh, and that the story could go on uh, in, a, in a new dynamic. Interestingly enough, I had been on a couple of auditions, uh, Law and Order uh, and another short film I did where I had to learn uh, African dialect and also did a play back in, 2004, Intimate Apparel, where it wasn't an African dialect, it was a Caribbean dialect. So it had been something that I had been working on for a while. So when I got the role of Dembe, it wasn't uh, it wasn't foreign to me. I was, I was very comfortable with it. Of course, there were certain words and vowels and letters that tripped me up and things like that. But for the most part, I was I was 80% ready to, to, to tackle it. Of this character, what challenges do you think you had playing it, especially going into the, you know, everyone else has been on the blacklist for so many seasons and taking that role up, Hashim? What do you think your biggest challenges were? Sorry, say that last part again. Biggest challenges. Biggest challenges playing that character. I mean, the biggest challenge for me personally playing the character and and professionally is when he went over to the task force. I think when... uh, uh, Dembe went over to the task force. There was just a lot of jargon and a lot of download that Dembe wasn't, and Isham Taufik wasn't used to doing, especially with that type of uh, accent. Um, I would say that was the, the biggest challenge. And I will say earlier also, personally, the, the challenge in the um, learning the power of silence and, and how to maneuver and how to handle that in the first couple of seasons when Dembe didn't have any lines at all. Harry, how does it feel now? You know, so many seasons of the blacklist that it's finally coming to an end. Is it is it still real for you? Well, we've had a little more time to get used to it, Neil, than than uh, than the fans, perhaps. Uh, that is, you know, we stopped, we completed filming, we wrapped up shooting of it. Gosh, a couple months ago now, and so you know, just getting used to. It. We would normally be off this time of the year anyway. This is our hiatus time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be an adjustment, uh, but I think it's important for, 
actors, people in this industry in general, people in life to some extent, to not get too accustomed uh, to something. Ten years is is a lot. Uh, it could have gone on longer, but it's enough. And I and I and I think that um, that it's important to keep the juices flowing. It's important to know what the new shows are going to be bringing. It's important to know that we can um, sort of still be viable in that environment, even though much of the future at this particular moment is a little bit in doubt because of pending strikes and ongoing strikes with the Writers Guild and so forth. But that said, I think it'll give everybody a chance to kind of reconfigure and to see what the future is going to bring and to see if we are uh, capable of, of being up to the task of, of, of swimming in the, in the current tide. So again, Thursdays, 8 p.m. on NBC, and the two-hour season finale is Thursday, July 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Appreciate you guys. Uh, thanks again, and thank you for bringing to these fan, the fans of the Blacklist so many amazing seasons, and best of luck to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I right, take care. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. Also, uh, the Love Is podcast. I'm excited to welcome my co-host Kim Sorrell, author of Love Is and podcast host of Love Is. Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. Hi, Neil. I am doing great. And yes, I'm very excited about our guest, Nick Shakur. I hope I said that right, Nick. You Perfect. are a quite a guy. So uh, the story goes, as I know it, that in fourth grade, your gym teacher saw this incredible talent in you. And pretty soon there was a, a school assembly where you were showcasing your incredible talent. You're a funny, funny man, and you've done so many things. I've got a grandson who loves you in the video games that you do, and oh, um, cool. probably some sons who do too, actually. And uh, And not to mention... Care Bears and all the other wonderful things you've done. And now The Chosen. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, wow. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Yeah, no problem. So uh, interesting uh, story, your background. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. What a fourth grader is doing, imitating the teachers, I think. Is that how it goes? <laughs> Yeah, it was during PE class uh, with our PE teacher. His name is Rudy Benton. Awesome dude. He was more than a PE teacher. He was like everybody's favorite father or uncle. And um, and the really unique thing about him was he saw you. He actually saw you individually and not just as a whole, as a classroom. And what started off as him challenging each student to get up and make the rest of the class laugh uh, to show us how our diaphragms worked. I mean, this is how dedicated this guy was to health and fitness. He didn't want us to just do exercise. He wanted to teach us about how the body functioned. And uh, so each student gets up and does something else. And, you know, it was the quiet, you know, timid immigrant kid up until that point. And I, I raised my hand because as a kid, uh, I would always imitate uncles, aunts, you know, people in my family. My mom would put me in the middle of a living room and tell me, oh, now do this person, now do that person. And I would just snap into their voice and become them. And uh, so I got up on stage and everybody was giving me kind of side stares like, this guy doesn't even talk. What is he going to do to make us laugh? Next thing I know, the whole class is cracking up. And I look to my left and Mr. Benton is in fetal position on the ground and his face is beat red. And he's just <laughs> holding himself, holding his stomach because he's 
just in pain and laughing at the same time. So he comes up to me. The whole class gets taken up with this crazy improv that I decided to do of all the teachers in the school. And uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he's trying to catch his breath. And he was like, kid, you're hilarious. Can you do this for all my classes? And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. He goes and asks the school principal, Mr. Heron at the time. And Mr. Heron said, absolutely not. That is against the law. <laughs> and uh, so instead, as a compromise, he convinces him to hold a special assembly two hours from that point or three hours where I'd be on stage doing this for the entire school and doing it for the teachers that I was parodying. <laughs> and uh, so I'm on stage as a, was eight, I was eight years old or nine years old. And Mr. Benton is to stage left, I think they call it, with the, you know, with the ropes in hand. And, and I looked at him, I was like, Mr. Benton, I don't think I can, because I look out the curtains, I'm like, what am I doing here? And he said, no, you're going to be great. You're going to be funny. He just pulls the curtain and I let it rip. And next thing I know, all the teachers were great sports and I didn't get in trouble. <laughs> the entire school was laughing. And, wow. Uh, yeah. And it, I, I had such a rush that I, I'd never felt anything like that in my life. Like there was a river flowing through me effortlessly and, and, uh, and, and, and although I didn't really get into acting until my 30s as a serious kind of pursuit, uh, Mr. Benton saw that thing in me that nobody else saw outside of my own fame. You know, it's interesting when you say that. So you didn't get in acting in your 30s. How did that happen? Like, what were you doing before that? Well, I did. I've done so many jobs. I've served tables. I've been a bar back. I did junk removal service for got junk. <laughs> um, I did get my college degree. Of course, I did it in cinema. I studied. I wanted to direct music videos and do voiceovers on the side. That was kind of in my mind. And voiceover, an interest partook in that when my buddies in college started having me prank call businesses <laughs> when they found out I could do voices. Um, but it really took um, it really took uh, a breakup that went haywire and the economy crashing in late two thousand and eight nine. Um, and my finances dwindling. It took for me to lose everything to move back in with my parents. And um, my mom would just walk by my bed in the room, not by my bed, by my room, and just see me laying in bed every day, looking up at the ceiling, wondering what happened to my life. And, uh, and one day she stopped and very, very gently and very, very low tone. She said, well, now that you've lost everything, why don't you do what you've always been good at as a kid, which is acting. And then a little like fire, like a little match was lit in me. And I, I sat there and she just kind of walked away and I still laid there. And I thought, Hmm, yeah, I don't have anything left. I barely have any money left in my bank. I don't have a girlfriend anymore. I don't have any obligations. Okay. Yeah. So next thing I know within the next couple months, I got myself a part-time job at a retail store in the hometown of my parents. I said, okay, I'm going to buy a computer and then I'm going to edit my own voice demo and I'm going to send it to all the agents in, in the Bay Area and San Francisco. And yeah, I am going to do it. I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> and next thing I knew, six months down the line, I was with an agency and I was booking voiceover roles and commercials every month. 
And I thought, wow. So eventually, three years later, moved to L.A., got an animation voice agent. A year after that, an on-camera agent. Everything just one thing led to another. But it, it, the biggest lesson that was it took all of these things that I saw as catastrophes at the time to realign me with what I believe God wanted me to do mm -hmm. because it came so easy. The voiceovers were like second nature to me. The, the acting was like second nature. And I thought, wow, okay, like let's, let's do this. And yeah, you have your slow periods and you have periods where you're questioning yourself, but um, it was like, you know, God was guiding me the entire time and allowing things to happen that didn't feel comfortable in a healthy increment um, to lead me to where I am today. You know, that's so interesting. I heard an interview where you talked about coincidences, that all these coincidences were happening when you got the role of Zebedee and then you're in the airport and the two guys you run into are going to be your two sons, James and John, and, and to talk to them. And then other things happened and, and that these coincidences started happening which, uh, you know, looking back, maybe weren't so coincidental, along no. with all these other coincidences that happen throughout life, right? Like, how do you look at that? It's, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's definitely not a coincidence. When I was looking at them as coincidence at the time, before even booking the role uh, in The Chosen, um, I, I had a talk with God and I said, you know, you probably don't even exist. <laughs> Imagine talking to somebody and then telling them they don't exist. Um, and so all of these were him guiding me, but it was kind of like, it, in hindsight, I probably was a very stubborn child of his fighting all of these paths that he's trying to put me on where he's like, just stay still for a second, man. Like, so I can make this easier for you. And I'm just fighting everything along the way. Um, everything. I mean, one, one crazy thing that happened while we were shooting season one, I, I arrive and we're shooting for four days. I get a call from my brother-in-law the night before we were going to shoot the scene where Zebedee sends James and John off to follow Jesus. My brother-in-law says, your dad's had a heart attack. We're in the hospital right now. And my whole world was just thrown mm -hmm. off. And I said, what? He said, yeah. And I said, well, 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 wait a second. There were never signs of what? So I was looking up red-eye flights. This is at 11 p.m. I get to my hotel room. My mom's telling me, stay, don't ruin your career. I'm like, mom, forget my career. What is going on? He's going to be in surgery tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. By the time you get here, he's already going to be in surgery. What are you going to do if you show up? I'm like, no, mom, I got to hang up. I got to look for flights. So I'm looking for flights. And those voices that came back that were telling me not to do The Chosen <laughs> when I first booked the role, they came back like, I don't know how many it was, like, yeah, you're such a terrible son if you don't leave. See what happened. You came here. You should have turned it down and been firm about that. Blah, 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 blah. And the voices got so intense that I just had to stop for a second, put down my phone, and just have a one-on-one -on -one with God. And I said, God... And I felt, I know we weren't on the best of terms or I wasn't on the best of terms with you. And I've been here for four days and this actually being on the set and feeling this good feeling that I called at the time, 
something feels right here and I want you to tell me, what do you want me to do? Should I stay or should I go? And then a deep voice came like it was coming from the bottom of this well. And I just heard stay. I said, what? Stay? It's like, stay. Are you sure? And then I hear, if you leave, you're going to ruin everything. You're going to ruin the shoot and you're going to ruin your dad's chances of surviving. And then, and that was, yeah, that was the first moment that I realized, you know what? I'm going to give dad to my, I'm going to give my dad to God. And I said, okay, God, if you want to take him tonight and you've meant to bring me here, then I guess I'm going to have to be okay with that. And I've never had that attitude. And I just burst out screaming and crying, called mm. my mom and said, I'm, I'm not coming. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay to shoot. She said, everything will be fine. Just wow. stay. That's fantastic. I hang up the phone. Wow. That story is so powerful. I mean, that's a yeah. powerful story you share. And it's like, we don't understand what happens in life when we hit rock bottom, how we reinvent ourselves. And we do it over and over again so many times in our lives, Nick. Now, playing this role compared to voiceover, what's the difference? I mean, it's got to be a big difference. You're on camera now versus behind the scenes. Yeah doing it. I don't know how many acting experiences you had more than the other, but this has really changed you because you've done so many seasons now as a, yes. an acting role on camera. What's the difference? Yeah. So whether it's, whether it's the chosen or any other on camera project, um, I've always brought this innate thing that God has given me, which is the core of the character comes to me in the form of his or its voice, if it's like a creature or a monster. Whatever. So I just use what I've always used for voiceover, which is, well, the root of the character is rooted in their voice, in their being. So once I figure that out and it's given to me as a download, I can then perform it, whether it's a voiceover or whether it's, it's Zebedee for the Chosen. Because obviously Zebedee is not my natural voice vocal range. He's not... I don't, I don't go around, you know, I don't go around talking like that. Um, so once he was downloaded to me, his image and his voice, it was like, well, I'm just going to do the lines in his voice. And eventually my whole psychology gets flooded with who he is and um, his motivations and his love and his dislikes. And everything just comes to me without really doing any script analysis. Because for me, it's not a mental exercise. It's not something that... Um, like if it was, I wouldn't be doing acting. I'd be doing something else that's more consistent. If I've got to use my mind that much, totally. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a dance. Acting is a dance that I do with God. It's, a, it's a collaboration with Him. It's not something I just do. And uh, and and the, and the biggest difference is, and I've always said this in voiceover too. That's where I've gotten my start, and I've done way more voiceover than than on camera projects. Um, is that, and, and I've said this to this day, I come from voiceover and, and to me, voiceover is the purest form of acting, in my opinion, because when you're doing a voiceover, you cannot hide behind good lighting. You cannot hide behind a take. Right. You cannot hide behind mm -hmm. music. Um, right. You're the just performance. Excited. Yeah. yeah. People totally are good. hearing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They're hearing the character. So if the character is not there, he's not there. Yeah. 
and it right. falls flat. So wow, I just wow, bring wow. that yeah. mindset to absolutely. I bring that to to on camera. I bring that that's same thing. That's, that's fantastic, Nick. Best place people can check you out in the chosen where people can check it out right now for the new season coming up. In the last yeah. Place. yeah, if you right. download the chosen app, you can watch the episodes for free. You can pay it forward if you choose to. You can watch it on Netflix, on Hulu, Amazon Prime. And uh, pretty soon, the CW <laughs> is going to be airing uh, previous seasons of The Chosen. So you can check it out there, too. So, Nick, I, I know that we are very so short on time, but I'm sure people are dying to know what happened with your dad. How is your dad? So as I'm doing the sending James and John off to, to follow Jesus during that scene, I was completely out of my mind that whole day. And the surgery that, that they did on him when I went back, the doctor told me his first heart attack should have killed him. And he said uh, the surgery was a success. And he said, in all my 40 years, your dad was the first time we did not have to use a fibrillator because the minute we put his heart back into his body, wow, all of his vitals just kicked in by themselves. And then the doctor pointed at my dad and he said, I can't describe this, but you know this is a miracle, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> what a tremendous miracle what you are, Nick. Thank you again. We appreciate it. People definitely check out The Chosen in so many different places and check out Nick. Thanks again, Nick. You got Thanks, it. Nick. Take care, guys. All right. All right. That was a special simulcast, Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast, guys. Take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? And I know we have a big group of people to interview today and it's such a great uh, show. Kim, take it away. Yeah. Hi, Neil. I'm doing great. I am actually on a train. So if I move around, hopefully I won't make anybody motion sick and you won't hear the train too much. But uh, Amtrak, all the way, baby. It's kind of nice. I am so excited <laughs> about our guest. We have met Karen before. Karen Abercrombie, who is one of a kind. I have to say, Karen, I just adore you. And we have teased these stallings with us. And he played for the Cardinals. And between them, the two of them, uh, they have such a passion to do what's right in the world, to, to help people with their faith, help people grow in their faith. And they put their faith as number one, but they are both incredible actors, writers, producers. I don't even know how many awards they have between the two of them, but thank you guys so much for being here. It's so great to see you. I uh, appreciate it. And also we got Cameron Arnett with us as well. So Cameron, appreciate you stopping by as well. And then you know, Kim and we'll just go. It's good no to ask a question. How are you? Great to see you too. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I got on a little late. It's nice that we have the whole crowd. So <laughs> you've got a new show coming out that is outstanding. I am sure that it will quickly become a fan favorite. Eleanor's bench. Karen playing Eleanor. Karen, if you could start us out and just tell us a bit about Eleanor's Bunch. I'm sure everybody's dying to hear about it. It's, it's a wonderful, uh, powerful um, piece. Uh, miniseries, six episodes, and it's a story about a woman who uh, she's leaving a practice where she was at the top of her game um, at one of the premier law firms in Washington, D.C. Her father becomes ill and she has to spend a lot of time in her old neighborhood. 
and things have changed. Things are rough. Things are tough. And um, just beginning to spend a lot of time there, she's seeing things that she hadn't seen or she didn't pop in just to visit her dad. And uh, he becomes very ill and she has to spend a lot of time over there and um, she can see now. And um, she eventually leaves her prestigious position at this law firm and she takes a seat as a judge on the juvenile um, bench, you know. And so, yeah, it, it's powerful. The stories are powerful. And uh, yeah, playing the heartstrings and open a lot of eyes for a lot of people who, yeah, will be looking in. So I'm so grateful to be a part of this and to be working with these two outstanding gentlemen, outstanding beings and outstanding artists. TC, tell us, you know, specifically enough about the project and how impactful it has been for you. Uh, I'll speak mostly to just, just the overall message in it, as I think it's, it's addressed in such a way that it's, it's interesting. Um, I think it addresses it from a real world place uh, mm-hmm. to where, you know, to just knock out the elephant in the room, you know, uh, a faith-based uh, story or whatever. And I just, you know, the immediate thing people think is just, you know, what's the message that I'm going to get? You know, who's going to preach to me? Who's going to... Mm-hmm. And uh, I was happy to see that this just doesn't do that. It's the the story does the, if you want to use the word preaching, I like to use the word teaching. Um, mm. And the story teaches the message in how you can apply this stuff in your life, you know, as a Christ follower or just as a human being. I think it does a good job of, of that. And so I'm just impressed that it does that in a, in a real world way. Um, and as far as my character, um, you know, I, I play the, the son in it. And for me, it's just, it was easy for me because it's something that I went through in real life. You know, I've, uh, the Apollo character, I've done that in real life. I've had that encounter with my dad in real life. Um, so uh, it's just, I think people will be able to pro- possibly in some way, shape or form with some of these characters, maybe see themselves in it and uh, they'll be able to resonate with it that way. And when you can resonate with what you're watching, I mean, that's where the power comes from. And so I feel like they'll, they'll see that with this. So I'm excited to to see that play out and, and see people's response to the different characters and the different things that they go through. Yeah, well, that's that's incredible. And people are gonna, gonna love it <laughs> and learn a lot from it. I like that too, the teaching, not preaching. That makes a whole lot of sense. Cameron, you, how did you become a part of this and uh, what does it mean to you? Well, actually, um, I became part of this quite early on. We had actually shot a pilot to begin with um prior to this and uh so many other things happened and things changed and when it came to this point um i got involved playing reginald which is the love interest of uh eleanor and he's the one that's basically in the neighborhood that has a pulse on the neighborhood and who understands what's going on right now as eleanor is coming back and so the uh fervor between them and as to what's going to happen between them and those kind of things kind of a, is a through line but that's at the same time mainly you're dealing with the uh, interactions of the neighborhood of the people the circumstances who they are what they go through and the reality of how 
it interrelates with every other life, um, whether they're in that neighborhood or not. And um, like TC was saying, I, one of the things that I, I appreciate about it was or is that it, it teaches you, shows you aspects of life that you may have not thought about, but then you, when you see it on the screen, you realize the similitude that it has to other lives and how it can really impact you, how you resonate with it, because really it's something that's talking about humanity as opposed to just people uh, across the tracks. And I think the great thing, Cameron, also is the fact that we're finally, you know, looking at certain stories in Christian based, that's going to really give the real world accounting of what's happening, not yes. just sugarcoated, really going into some deep, strong messages, but still involving faith in it, which will cross promote to other people that might not be Christian that really Correct. want something like this. Correct. Without a doubt, I think, you know, the importance of um, being able not to sugarcoat, to tell a true gritty story of life and, and human and people um, and how faith is interwoven within that. But the reality is that you're just talking about life. And I think regardless of what your beliefs may be from the spiritual perspective, um, there's an understanding of what um, the humans are going through and what you need to know about each and every one um, in the process. And and, and uh, I, I think some of it will actually rub people right way or the wrong way but the bottom line is that truth will be told and and um we'll have something to really discuss in a real way absolutely such great things and uh karen that's the exciting thing you've been part of pure flicks and other films now to see something in this series that really is bringing home it's got to feel great for you as an actor all these years to see what's happening and how we're really intertwining as i said before the faith and the realness i'm i'm excited about What's happening and how Pure Flex is looking into these things more? As am I. It's important. And when people uh, tune in and they see real life, their lives um, played out on screen before them, they'll be pulled in, they'll be drawn in. And so I believe that when that happens, then people drop the barriers and then you can really minister through the story without hitting somebody in the head or pulling out a Bible <laughs> and you know, all of that stuff. So yeah, real life, real life. Fantastic. And again, it's available on Pure Flix today, June 30th. Everyone needs to go check it out and uh, appreciate you guys all coming by. Uh, it was a quick interview, but I appreciate it. And good luck to all of you and great work on this, this project and look forward to seeing you guys again. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. All right. All right. You're, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spinal Simulcast to the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, what's going on? And uh, you're in South Dakota. You're enjoying yourself, aren't you? <laughs> I am, Neil. So great to see you. So great to be with you. Very excited about our guests. But yes, I am in Custer, South Dakota, and it is beautiful. It's the first time I've ever been here, and it's uh, gorgeous. I absolutely love it. And our guest just told me that he loves South Dakota. A man who has been to all 50 states. I don't know very many people who have been to all 50 states. That's pretty amazing all by itself. But there's so much more amazing things about Robert Hunter, who is a writer, 
a songwriter, a singer, a man of the world, well-traveled, well, everything. So many experiences is doing some really great things right now. So we're excited to talk about that. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Again, yeah. yeah, we're so glad to have you. Okay, so Danville, Danville, PA, I believe is where you are from. And then he had this crazy connection down the road to it. But why don't you first tell us a little bit about who is Robert Hunter? Well, I think I can best explain that by um, starting sort of at the beginning of this adventure with what you just mentioned, the 50 state uh, tour. I was I didn't know this, but the first person to attempt a 50 state book and record tour in the span of a year. Um, and now I know why I'm the first one, because it's absolutely on one hand amazing, but on another hand, completely and totally insane to buy, to, to buy an RV, uh, which I've never driven before, um, and get on the road with a manager and a guitar player and play, I don't know, perhaps 600 shows in one year. Um, everything from guitars in bookstores uh, to books in bars to uh, major venues and uh, also the idea of just having to get to all those places like 150,000 miles in the RV plus in the air to Alaska and Hawaii and um, yeah it was absolutely crazy but also um, really enlightening in another way um, it sort of changed my mind about what I started out to become which was like a big star um, and opened my eyes to like a lot of different people from all over the world who I met in places like South Dakota or my now wife um, who is Dutch and was just on a vacation. I happened to meet her um, in Amarillo, Texas, um, where I didn't even have a show. Uh, so um, I guess you could say I'm a, I'm a risk taker. I'm an adventurer, but more than anything, I feel like deep down in my heart, I'm a artist and uh, now a different kind of artist. Um, I've been playing guitar and piano, piano since I was like three um, guitar long before any songs were ever, you know, had any ambitions of being on the radio. Um, and that, that sort of uh, changed when I did the 50 state um tour i don't know if you want me just to continue on but no, I, we're I mean, going to jump we have lots of conversation i want to know why he's such a risk taker kim first of all when were you born what what month that's always interesting when you look at horoscopes you look at specifically risk taking when were you born i was born in february so i'm a pisces i don't know much about horoscopes but i that has to be a risk taking uh, horoscope sign i would think <laughs> I don't know, but it's really interesting to look at horoscopes because it's not something you should read your horoscope every day, but you look at personalities and how personalities work in certain ways. But what do you think made you a risk taker, Robert? Um, well, I, I think for me, it was a part of my part of my background. My brother was a like heroic figure to me. He was a, a police officer. My dad also was a police officer. Um and uh, my brother died at a very young age, 
very tragically and very suddenly oh. and losing him, losing him so um, unexpectedly uh, made me realize, I think, just how short life really is and also how precious and valuable people are and moments. Um, and I was only about 11 when that happened. So I've lived most of my life sort of embracing, um, you know, that sort of, uh, I know it sounds sappy, but like following your heart and uh, most decisions I make, however scary they are, and they are scary to me. I mean, I've done, I'm a mountain climber as well. And some of the things I do, it's not like I don't have fear. I just think about it from like, if I were 90, um, look back would I regret not doing this um, and that's sort of how I've lived my life and also in terms of trying to do the right thing even when no one's looking trying to help people the best I can um, in some cases even when I need help myself uh, I've really tried to make the most of every every opportunity and I guess that's translated into risk um, taking but for me it's just making the most of um things life moments wow. opportunities because wow. they they sometimes only come once that's true that's true and i'm so sorry about your brother that he had to be a really tough time and 11 years old that's a that's an interesting age to lose a brother because uh dealing with death and really understanding it, it i've read that it starts to happen at around 10 years old and so uh you were pretty aware I'm sure of everything going on and whatever it had to be horrible horrible for your folks horrible for everybody uh, but it sounds like it really changed maybe what you would be in life like it um it had a pretty profound effect on on where you are and what you're doing it, it did and I think true? about them I it is true and I think about them every time um you know taking a risk or or, or making a uh, giant leap from something really safe to something perhaps not as safe, but with um, many more potential benefits. I always think like, what would Donnie, my brother, what would, what would he do if he were still alive and he were still here? And I, I really firmly believe um, he would have taken the adventure. At one point, he wanted to leave the police and uh, start a uh, <laughs> a pony show with the circus, which my dad said, no way, no way. But he was just a funny guy like that, too. So I feel like I kind of joined yeah. the circus when I went on the road. So, Robert, <laughs> when you were looking at how, why you thought you, you wanted to be a musician, how did that develop? And then I want to go to the author and songwriter, too, because I guess it all goes hand in hand. But when you thought about being a musician, how did that journey take you? It, it just was always in me. Like I said, playing piano and guitar from like a, a very young age, I, it was just my outlet emotionally. It was how I communicated or, or tried to as a young guy with girls, you know, write them a song because I'm like awkward and shy by nature. But I can uh, uh, play a guitar and not be so awkward and, and shy. So music has just always been a part of my life in good times and in bad it's just something that's that's in me and in, uh i've always you know had that ambition to become a professional musician and again when that opportunity knocked uh i i took it and ultimately you know the the story sort of ends in a kind of dis disaster um not that the rv uh 
well, I'm actually sitting in the tour RV right, right now, uh, which, you know, it feels a little too much like a van down by the river in my mother's yard sitting in this <laughs> RV and there's a Creek right back here. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, I mean, when the tour ended of all places, I ended up in Roswell to write my next novel and plan my next tour. Long story short, ended up falling in love with the girl I met in Amarillo and moving to the Netherlands. And I thought, you know, I can write books in the Netherlands and I can um, uh, play music in the Netherlands. Uh, but there were two problems with that. One, they don't listen to rock and roll music there. <laughs> I mean, in, in general, they like <laughs> dance music. You know, I went to a big giant festival and was told this person and that person is gonna be there and whatever. And it turned out to be a DJ playing those people, which is fine but they don't play the kind of music that I write. So that was a challenge. And then secondly, the coronavirus happened and it was devastating to me. Uh, and I know many people had it worse. Some unfortunately lost their lives, but you know, the music industry and entertainment industry was really, really impacted. So my plans for a subsequent tour were out the window. I'm living in the Netherlands, which I have for the past two years. Um, with basically nothing to do. And I'm watching this dream of being a musician that I came, you know, not, not within reach of, but I had it in my hand. I watched it just slip through my fingers like day by day by day. And, and on top of that, um, you know, I don't speak Dutch. And on top of that, I don't have any family or friends there. And on top of that, my other hero, I mentioned my dad, um, he was 50 something when I was born. So he was in his 90s at that point. And I'm worried about him and I'm missing that time also. But I can't travel because there were travel restrictions additionally. And I ended up in this really, 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 really dark place um, up, 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 on so many levels, financially, creatively, emotionally, spiritually. And because I still clung to the idea that I have to be this rock star figure or whatever, best-selling author, whatever, blah, 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 which honestly means nothing in the real world um, because it doesn't pay the bills and it doesn't make you a good person. And it also isn't there to talk to you at night when you're in a country 6,000 miles away and have no one. Um, and I couldn't tell anybody about that. You know, I couldn't talk about it because in my mind, I had to maintain this um, persona and that that was that was wrong. But that's what I did. And, and it got really dark. Um, and the music, the thing that I always went to um, sort of as an outlet emotionally, I didn't even have that because in my mind, the dream was dead. Um, and I stopped even playing the guitar or writing songs or doing anything. Um, because it all felt very tragic and very hopeless and very sad. And I was counting all the things that I had lost um, instead of all the things that I, I had, but I couldn't see in that moment. And, and this was like a real turning point for me. Um, I just happened to go online. I have a Google feed that just gives me stories, most of which I don't care about. But one said uh, simply that there were these high school kids who started a suicide prevention group to address mental illness. And it didn't even say where. So again, I'm in the Netherlands. I just clicked on that because I thought that's really inspiring. That's cool of them to do. I've met so many people on the road who had so many stories of struggle 
and adversity and, and also um, overcoming those those things. But, you know, mental health was something I was struggling with at the time. And I've also lost some really good people to me um, as a result of suicide. And anyway, I hit the link and I looked at the article. And of all things, the group was in Danville, Pennsylvania, um, where I was from, which blew my blew my mind. And one of the kids in the group is the daughter of a friend, a very good friend that I went to high school with. So I messaged messaged him. Uh, and I said, you know, I saw the article, you know, tell Lauren, she did an amazing thing there. And it really inspired me. And the way it inspired me was to just sort of give her uh, like an out of girl. And I picked up my guitar for the first time. And I, I swear in, in the span of five minutes, I wrote this song permanent. And um, it, it like, uh, uh, it felt good for a variety of reasons one just that i'm playing guitar again but two the road the words i wrote were sort of the ones i needed to hear and three you know i wanted to congratulate someone just doing good things in this world and the idea that like if a kid can do that inspire a grown man across the atlantic and and hopefully probably many others we we all can and i wanted to make that um known and and so i wrote those words you know uh i know you're afraid to feel this way um it's gonna be okay it's not permanent if if you're lost don't be ashamed um it's gonna be okay it's not permanent uh i know it's hard but please let someone in and that that's the thing i wasn't doing and um as i'm writing those words i'm also absorbing them back to myself um and when I sent just the rough version of that song, just as a congratulations, and I felt accomplished as it as it was, um, my friend said he, he wants me to get it made. And I thought, wow, I haven't put out a song in so long. And now, you know, a very short time later, you know, the old Nashville song machine is fired back up again. And boom, we've got a, a finished product um, that I'm that I'm very proud of. Yeah. Wow. So inspiring. And um, suicide's tough. And the numbers are crazy. And uh, certainly the pandemic did not help anybody's psyche. And so to take a hard, hard moment, maybe the toughest moment of your life, where you were down in the darkest spot and turning it into something very positive and uh, motivational and inspirational and to reach out the way that you did is incredible. Just the whole story of it is uh, something that should be a movie, a book, uh, uh, something all by itself. And uh, I'm so proud of her too. Like good for those kids in Danville. Go you Danville High School students because kids need Absolutely. to stand up for each other. And, and mental health, there's such a stigma around mental health. And so people are afraid to reach out and ask for help, afraid to admit a, a weakness and it's not what it is. I mean, everybody has no. their moments, right? When, when they're Everyone. down. And, yeah. So reaching out is so important. And uh, absolutely. So, yeah. So the way you reached out and because it's a song and because it's recorded, it will continue to reach out to people. I lost my mom that way, actually. And oh. suicide's tough. It's um, the worst way oh, to lose somebody. I'm very sorry. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. But I really, really appreciate 
what those kids did and what you did. I love the song. Every word of it is so powerful, so impactful. And you did just such a beautiful job with it. And I know it's a song like, like no other for you in that it's not about fame, right? The song, like no. what you're doing with the song. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Yeah, it, it's the it, it's the exact opposite of being about fame. In fact, um, it was never on my mind at all that we would even put out the song. Um, and in terms of like the charts, it's actually not my best song. And I, I don't care because um, a short time after it was put out, uh, I started getting uh, private messages of very personal stories of adversity, uh, people who connected with the song uh, or, or who were affected by it or inspired by it. And I'm talking from all over the world, including um, the Ukraine. Uh, and in, in addition, uh, which that that is a success. You know, it doesn't matter the charts. It doesn't matter the fame. The, the song wasn't written for that for that reason. Um, that said, of course, I have an ambition that even more people um, can hear it again, not so that it does better on a chart, but because I know if it can have had an impact on the people who reached out, it can, it can hopefully have an impact in a positive way on other people who might be struggling, who might hear someone like me, uh, say, you know, I've struggled too. And to be honest, I've been all over the world and so does everyone. The sad thing is too many people keep it a secret. Um, they put on a, a facade and I did that. But now I'm coming out and saying that isn't real, you know, and that's not healthy. And that um, that is what makes the song to me a success, no matter what it generates chart. What, like, I don't I really don't I really don't care. And what's um, awesome, and to that end. Okay. No, I was going to no, you Sorry, no, 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 that's OK. I was just going to jump in just because we really want to get this point in. Because of what you've done, because you, at your darkest moment, you reached out to help others, your life has turned around and you talk about that, but also you're partnering with a mental health organization website that really has making it so that you can do this stuff and really make a difference, right? To keep you going, to keep you a, as an artist and do what you love, right? Kind of tell us that story. Correct. Well, um, NAMI, uh, for instance is a mental health organization doing very, very important work. And they've given me the opportunity to share some of these things through their platform and, and other mental health organizations have also um, begun to do the same, which I, I really appreciate um, for the same reasons I, I mentioned. And in addition to that, I've also been fortunate enough to have um, uh, now worked with some other artists um, very talented people who also share the same vision, who are remaking the song in a completely different genre. Um, for instance, um, Chase Akers, a uh, very prominent remixer kind of dance style guy. I mean, they're probably going to love him in Holland. They don't like, they don't like my music, but I don't care. Um, he's remaking the song in his own style, in his own, um, you know, way, but with the same message intact. And I'm actually offering the original stems and the rights to do that to other artists so that they can do it even in other languages. I've met with people in Germany, um, also in Holland. I was also in Turkey to do that very thing. Um, although that was disrupted because I, the, the huge earthquake uh, 
that happened. Um, I was I was there for that. I experienced it. I was um, in Cedar Turkey when the gigantic earthquake hit. Um, fortunately, was okay, uh, but had the um, experience of meeting with people who uh, survived it, and their stories are just uh, remarkable, in- incredible, um, tragic on one hand, but also so inspiring on the other. And the whole way through, you know, I'm thinking about that song. And, you know, the, 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 I think like universal thing that has now changed my whole life and presented me and put me in these situations where I perhaps have the ability to um, offer words of encouragement or support or share a story and be in places where I continuously um, uh, uh, see it at its most dramatic. And um, yeah, I don't know how to explain that. I certainly didn't go to Turkey to experience that earthquake. Um, and, and at one point it was me and a Ukrainian uh, uh, refugee and a self-proclaimed Russian um, patriot, all three of us having a conversation about what's going on there that that happened as well and again i didn't walk into the room expecting that um so something changed when i read that article and it seems now that my music has a has a purpose and i feel very very good and um very good about that and i take it very seriously and want to um you know do my best to represent uh, that message on behalf of all the people who have uh, done amazing things all, all, for all the people who are suffering through very difficult um, times and, and share that message that, that there is hope and that, um, you know, you, you yeah. have to be able to, to talk to people and that these, these bad times, these hard feelings, they, they will pass. Totally. Right. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Hope is so huge. And uh, you giving hope and then living through the earthquake. Holy cow, I've done a lot of work in Haiti since the earthquake uh, in 2010 that killed 200,000 people. And so I understand the devastation of earthquake and what a mental toll that plays on somebody living through a natural disaster. And you live through this natural disaster. And yet now here you are on the other end, all about helping people through, uh, through the tough times. And it's not permanent it's just so relevant and so true and it seems so simple yet it's so deep and so profound because people have these dark moments and live through tough times you know covid an earthquake uh upset in in whatever the loss of somebody the things that we go through that everybody goes through in life in one way or another but it's not permanent it doesn't stay it's that for that moment right and you can get out of it, it. it it, it is. And I'm still living through that. I will let you know. Um, so I was in Turkey just a couple months ago. The plan was to return to Holland and visit my parents uh, at some point this summer. Um, while still in Turkey, I got a phone call from my mother that my hero father um, was sick. I immediately flew home um, a couple months ago. And unfortunately, unexpectedly, he passed away. So that's why I'm still here in Danville now. A lot of the plans I had got put on hold, of course, because I need to be here for my mom. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still struggling, you know, with those kind of things. Uh, just myself, 
you know, the loss of my father um, is, is tremendously difficult. And I can't tell you, I know it sounds ridiculous because there's many other people's songs that comfort me when I'm feeling, feeling down, but sometimes it goes through my head, you know, Rob, uh, talk to somebody, you know, Rob, this, this isn't permanent. You know, my dad's legacy is, and, um, you know, the, 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 the grief and the loss and the anger that, that, that part isn't. And I'm, you know, now starting to come around to just remembering all the good things about him. And I, I like to think and hope, and I know he's looking down and that he's proud of the, um, the choices I'm, I'm making and the things I'm, I'm trying to do, uh, just, just to try to, to do the right thing and, um, well, you got to give yourself a break too, right? Along the way, like you, like you said, reminding yourself to reach out to people and, and reminding yourself that it's not permanent. Still, there's this grief. I'm so sorry about your dad. And it is a tough thing to deal with. And you don't know why your mind goes to the places it goes or why you're feeling a certain way on a certain day. But grief is like that. It just kind of does funny things to you. So uh, it's amazing that you're just not that far off from losing your dad and you're in the place that you're in. And that you still have this huge heart to help other people. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. We appreciate. No, thank you. Giving, yeah, giving me this opportunity means a lot to me. I appreciate it very well, much. You're doing thank tremendous you. work. And Kim has a final question regarding love. Go ahead, Kim. I do. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, everybody goes through stuff, right? So I lost my husband a few years ago. He was diagnosed with cancer four months after I was diagnosed with cancer and passed away six no, weeks very later. Sorry. Yeah, well, thanks. So I, you know, I can feel your pain, brother. I'm with you on this. And, but it made me question a few things. And love was one of the things that it made me question. So I went on this year long journey to discover the true meaning of love. And the things that I found out and discovered about love blew my mind and just rocked my world. And um, I wrote a book about it, Love Is. And so love is you, always on my mind. And uh, love is huge, right? So as you're going it through is. all this process, here you meet this woman of your dreams, fall in love, move to another country because you're so in love. And so love obviously is a thing for you, but love goes way deeper than just, um, you know, like a, a relationship with her. I'm sure that there's a, a deeper sense of love. So tell me, where does love play into all of this for you? The the song, the woman of your dreams, the everything. It, it to me is the ultimate only thing that matters. You know, I, I, um, I don't believe in anything more than I believe in love. And I think I said something sappy earlier about following my heart. Um, but, uh, I think if you do that in the pursuit of the things you love, um, you know, whether it's risking it all to go to another country or, you know, sticking by someone through a tough time, um, or what, what, however it manifests itself, I think the, um, the most powerful force on earth is, is love. And ultimately the only one that I think endures, you know, the, the credit card bills and the problems and whatever at the end of life, um, they're gone, but the love remains and, and not, not much else. So to me, um, I don't think there's any greater pursuit or any greater thing to take a risk over 
um, yeah, uh, I, I fundamentally believe that. Oh, um, it's such, such powerful stuff, Robert. I tell you, if people would put, especially at your darkest time, you went and helped others. And that's the most powerful thing. We're in our darkest times when we're, we're, we're sad, we're suffering, we're dealing with things. We got to go help others. We got to stay busy.